Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Excuse me as I repeat a favorite story of mine of a gentleman I met, a family I met in California a number of years ago when Melinda and I were living out there as uh, newlyweds. <clears throat> Excuse me. He lived such a, um, a dreadful life growing up that when he turned 16 while living in Florida, he just ran away and hitchhiked as far as he could get from Florida as he could. And when he hit the ocean, the Pacific Ocean in California, it wasn't far enough. And so he lied to a Marine recruiter and joined the Marines so that he could get to go to Vietnam during that conflict. He, he did two tours, spent four years over there doing things that are uh, too graphic to explain. And he was, he was actually in those jungles doing those things on a special forces team. When he came back at 20 years old, he, he lived in California again, met a girl that would return a, a hello to him, and she introduced him to Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection and how he could be forgiven for what he had done and he could forgive other people for what he had received. And it, it revolutionized his life. They started a family together. Uh, he, he started uh, hanging sheetrock for a living and then ended up working all the time. And he, he bought the company. Became a, he owned the sheetrock company by the end of it. Anyway, when we ran into him, he had a full family. He was living halfway up the mountain with a view of the valley. And we would meet weekly in his living room to have a Bible study. And, and uh, he had, what, I think three teenagers. His oldest was 16 years old female, and she had everything, and she hated everything. <laughs> she hated it all. So she didn't like, you know, her car because it was used, and she didn't like her wardrobe because it was a little out of date. She didn't like her room because they had a view of the mountain and not the valley, and, and so she just, and she had to do chores. Her friends never did chores, and she had to do chores, and she didn't like that. And so all the haggling back and forth, uh, she finally just sat them down, mom and dad, and told them, you know, the way it ought to go. So when she came home from the school the next day, her father uh, had hit his, his mark. You know, he far passed that mark. And when she got home, she pulled in the driveway, and that's where her new room was. It was in the garage. She had five outfits that were hanging from a pipe outside. He found his old Marine Corps uh, cot that he had in Vietnam, and she'd be sleeping on that. She was told that if she were nice, she could shower out in the garage where there was kind of a mud room. When he came in from working construction, she could shower there. If she paid extra, she could shower inside. If she wanted to do any laundry of those five outfits, she would have to pay per load, and there was no car. She lived there for the semester that I know of and until she understood. When she was 16, it was a little different than when he was 16. Now, he did not do that to her because because she was ungrateful to him. She did, he did that because she was ungrateful. She was just ungrateful. It wasn't personal. He just knew she was sick. And ingratitude is quite possibly the worst form of cancer for your soul. It, it has to be tended to quickly. It spreads fast. Ingratitude is so contrary to our actual nature and our design. We are thankful by design. We are rejoiceful in all things by the way we were meant to be. And ingratitude is the opposite of that. And you can see that when a soul is demented and torn away from God and continues down that path, it ruins them. It wrecks them. 
you can see this even in scientific studies. The Wall Street Journal came out with an article, and I, saw, I read another one this week that was a 40-year study. Here's, here's a quick little sum summary of the Wall Street Journal's uh, review of a Harvard study. He says, it turns out that giving thanks is good for your health. A growing body of research suggests that maintaining an attitude of gratitude can improve your psychological, emotional, physical well-being. Study done to adults, they found out that people that were optimistic had more friends, less depressed, less greedy, less alcoholic. They made more money. They got more sleep. They had better jobs. And here's the part that I liked. They were more resistant to viral infections. For children, they found that children that were grateful, that had gratitude, they made better grades. They had higher scores. They had fewer headaches and made more friends. And here's why. Because we were not made to be ungrateful. We were made to be joy-filled. That is the way we were designed. And when you see the fall of man and the digression and the contamination of the soul of man that's uh, described in Romans, which is a good book for that, Romans chapter 1, watch how Paul says it got so bad that they were ungrateful. Look, I'll show it on the slide here. Romans 1 says, for even though they knew God, they knew God, they did not honor God nor give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not know God, and they didn't honor God. Just leave that alone. No, no, no. They didn't even give him thanks. That's how bad it was. And so their foolish hearts were darkened, and then they became, right, and, they were, and, their, and their speculations became futile. A healthy soul is a joy-filled soul. Like the Jesuit priest said, joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. We are designed to be overflowing and continually joyful. It is no wonder that when Paul talks to the Thessalonian church, he says, this is the will of God for your life. He says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Only two times as the Bible says, this is God's will for your life. This is it. And look how perpetual it is, right? Joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. It's this, it's this redundancy that's happening all the time that we've talked about before, you know, never give up, never give up. Now, j just to review a little bit, up until this point, in the last two or three weeks, we've talked about communal living or team philosophy or how we can work together, right? And, and, and it's, it's communal, right? The point is it's communal. Now, he changes, in, in some of your Bibles, it'll, it'll show that these three sentences are part of that same paragraph because these admonitions are still part of communal living, that you need to be joyful always, and that you should be praying continually, and you should be thankful in all circumstances, you guys. Okay. And, and, and sometimes it'll be a paragraph break, and here's why, because the change here is from when we were talking about dealing with each other. Right, how to help one another when we're weak, how to encourage one another when we're faint-hearted. Remember we talked about how we have to confront people uh, that are troublemakers? Now Paul is talking about not how th th this, this gratitude and thankfulness and prayerfulness is not towards each other. It is towards God. We have to do this towards God. And if we do it towards God, listen, don't you worry about a thing. It's going to spill out all over. This is an overflowing concept of because... Because this is not a to-do list. If you see uh, these, these are actually commands. If you see these commands as a to-do list, not only will you not be able to do them, but they won't work. 
You can't, be, you can't rejoice always. Okay, got that. I'll wake up this morning, rejoice always. Pray continually. It is, it is a mindset. It is the way of seeing a life. It is, uh, um, what is it? It's a, it's a disposition on kind of the way you live to be continually, right, joyful, to be ever prayerful, always going back, right, to be thankful in all circumstances. This is the meaning and the purpose of your life. So to be able to do that, something actually has to happen to you. You have to, you have, it is, it is kind of this heartbeat. It is this pulsing that is always part of your spirit's rhythm. Let's look at this. Okay, let's look at the first one. Be joyful. Be joyful always. Now, first of all, I just want to mention, it should be obvious, but sometimes it's not. This is not a personality trait. It's not personality driven. And so the cheerleaders in the crowd don't get a pass because it comes naturally to them, and the introverts and the quiets kind of have to work harder. It is, it's an attitude of the spirit, and you probably, hopefully you know a quiet, you know, maybe even introverted person that is filled with joy. They, they, love, they love God, and they love life, and they uh, are not driven by circumstances. And so you, the, the, happy, the happy extrovert sometimes is, is also, you know, up and down and up and down because they are. And that's the second part. This is not a circumstantial event. You, we are not tied to circumstances because if we are, then we can't be rejoicing always. We cannot have joy in all, at all times because life is very troubling. It, it's, it's difficult. And if, it's, if this is an emotion then it's going to contradict even passages in the Bible that talks about mourning and weeping and, and feeling sorrow. So it's, it's, not, it's not circumstantial. It's not temperamental. As, as I said again, it is, it, is, it is the absolute anchor to which our soul is tethered to, and it has to be, it, it is an expression of that tethering that gives us confidence and safety so that we can be joyful. So there, there's your assignment. So the problem is, is how, right? How do you do this? How do you get to this always being joyful, always being prayerful, being thankful in all circumstances? So um, let me just apologize ahead of time. I'm going to give you three kind of steps or whatever. It is, it is quite possibly the most difficult thing you will ever experience in your life. So just because... There'll be simple words to write down. I don't mean to make it petty. I am not making this easy, but it is somewhat simple. The first thing is that you have to hope less. The first thing is that you have to hope less. Here's a good example of that, okay? Uh, James Stockdale is an author of a, of, of a rather best-selling book called The Philosophical Thoughts of a Navy Fighter Pilot. He was in the Navy for 28 years. And he was a fighter pilot uh, in the Navy, and he was shot down over Vietnam. And he spent uh, eight years in a prisoner of war camp there. He was the highest-ranking Navy official that was a prisoner of war. He was eight years in one of these compound death camps. Of those eight years, four years he was in solitary confinement. Two years his legs were shackled together. Two full years his legs shackled together. Tortured 15 times without mercy. Yes, he received the Medal of Honor. Of course he did. In an interview one time, they asked him, who broke first? You know, you saw men come and go. Who were, who were the people that were first to die? What, like, 
single attribute maybe did they have that separated them to make them weak while you survived the eight years, four years in solitary, two years in chains? He said, I don't have to think about that. That's easy. The optimists were the first to go. Well, that doesn't sound right, does it? The optimists were the first to go. They hoped too much. And they couldn't live with the defeat. They'll come and get us. Thanksgiving. We're going to get found out this thing. Oh. Christmas. We'll be out of here on Christmas. Christmas is coming. When the flowers bud in the spring, I'll be home with my family. Maybe at end of the summer. I saw a plane. End of the summer. They'd never make it a year. What would happen to them? They would die. They would die of hopelessness because they hoped in the wrong things. They needed to hope less. They needed to hope in things that were certain, that were factual, that could be, that could be affected. And the things that were certain and factual was they were in a prisoner of war camp. And that was true. And the men that knew that they were there and they might stay there their entire lives hoped less, and lived long. You can't have joy overflowing all the time if you are holding on to hope. If you want something, no, if you need something that is less than what God tells you to hope for, you'll die in this prisoner of war camp we call life. And you have to turn over and let go of everything. You can't have joy until you have nothing. So if you're holding on, if you are holding on to um, a career that gives you fulfillment or financial security or a really great marriage and intimacy in that, or the children, they turn out well and they come and visit you and they talk fondly of you, you know, if, if, you, if you're hoping for health or long life, you're waiting for Thanksgiving, and it might not come. There's no promise that that's yours. That is not God's will for your life. And you'll be crushed. You have to let those go. They're good things. They're not things that tether you. Look, I don't know if there's a more spectacular example of people that, that hoped wrong and hoped for too much than the nation of Israel. And they are in the Bible for us to learn from. And, and I mean, if there was ever a group that Romans 1, 21 and 20 and 21 applied to, they, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks. And what happened? And they became futile in their speculations and they became foolish in their, in their, in their hearts their hearts were darkened. Listen to their foolish speculation. Listen to how their hearts are darkened. Because they get, out of, they, they get out of Egypt. Okay, You might have seen this in Ten Commandments. You might have read about it in the book of Exodus. But they get out of Egypt where they've been in captivity for 400 years and they're slaves. They're being beaten to death. And God is pulling them out of there and they're taken to the Red Sea. And they say to God, fool speculation because they didn't honor him as God nor give thanks. They said, what, did you bring us out here to kill us? 
And then they get on the other side of the Red Sea, and they haven't had water. And they say, did you bring us out here because there's more graves in the desert, and we're going to die of dehydration? And then after that, they said, are, are you going to starve us to death? And then God provides manna. Really? Oatmeal every day? Are you going to just bore us to death? We are absolutely all alone out here. This is what you have for us? And I think, I, I, I think if, uh, what's his name? Stockdale. If James Stockdale came to them, he'd say, you hope in too much. You need to hope less because you are hoping in this is the will of God for our life, that we would be safe and we'd be comfortable. And that's, that's what it's all about. And right now, we don't feel safe and we don't feel comfortable, and so we will be foolishly speculating and not give thanks to God. They're holding on and because of that, they don't experience joy unceasing. They don't rejoice always because they won't let go of their definition of comfort and safety. There's a book in the Old Testament. It's right there in the middle. It's absolutely right, right in the middle called Job. And uh, Job is an extravagantly wealthy businessman and has a fabulous, huge family that loves him. And in just a matter of days, all of this is taken away, all his wealth and possessions, and he, he goes from um, living in the castle to being out in the middle of a field. He has torn his clothes. He has covered his heads with ashes. He is weeping, okay? The emotion is weeping. He is grieving. He is suffering deeply. He is throwing up from the, from the fatigue. He is out of tears. And his wife comes to say to him, just curse God and die. And he says this. I was never holding on to that. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return to the grave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His hands were empty, and he could rejoice while weeping and grieving. There's our clue. Empty hands. If you hold on to something that can be taken or stolen or rust, or die, you can't have joy. You can't rejoice always. So the first thing is let it all go. I told you it wasn't going to be easy. Second, it says pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Always be thinking in prayer. Because now that you have nothing, your hands are empty. And you can pray without ceasing now and hear him. People that are prayer walkers, the people that are in a, amongst us that pray all the time without ceasing, what does that mean about the way they think? What is the pulse of their spirit? Okay, the way they think is that God is present. They feel the presence of God, or, or, or what are they, talking to themselves, right? right? They're schizophrenic, or they believe that God is there. And that he is working. And so they want to talk about it. That's what, and so people that are pray without ceasing are con, or pray continually, these people are looking and living their lives and they're talking about God and to God and they're thinking about God. They're thinking of the promises of God. So they're, they've emptied their hands and they've turned them up and the promises of God fill their hands. 
Now, the reason I say this is because, because Paul says in this letter, right, to the Thessalonians, he said, you received the gospel with joy in the Holy Spirit. Remember, when we brought you the word of God, you were rejoicing always in the words of the gospel. And, and so uh, people, that, people that pray with, without ceasing are people that are constantly meditating on the words of God. They can hear God's spirit. I know God's, I know God's native tongue. Do you know what he speaks? He speaks Bible. He does. He speaks Bible. And so if you know the Bible, you can hear him. If you don't know the Bible, you don't know if it's him or you or whatever. But he, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sentences in this book. And he will pull up the right ones at the right time, but you kind of have to know the language. And he speaks these promises to you. And that's, that's, that is what you're holding on to. If there was ever a group of people that had a spectacular example of what it's like to know God, but neither did they glorify him as God nor give him thanks, but the thinking became futile and their foolish speculation, they were, their, heart, their hearts were darkened, it would be Israel. Because, because when they left Egypt, they were taken to the Red Sea and they said, God, did you bring us out here to kill us? The Egyptian army would have an easier shot at us. And then on the other side of the Red Sea, did you bring us out here to dehydrate us to death? Did you bring us out to the desert because there's more graves and um, to starve us? Really? Oatmeal every day? We'll die of boredom out here. We are absolutely all alone. You're in the desert because you're not in Egypt. You're roaming around out here free because you're no longer a slave. No one brought you out here to kill you. You're not alone. You're with me. I am yours and you are mine. And that's all you need to hold on to. How foolish was their speculation? How dark was their heart? They are in the desert and they're saying, we're all alone out here without provision or protection. And there is a pillar of clouds as, as high as you can see that blocks the sun in the daytime and shields them with shade. You're with me. You're mine. I'm yours. At night, I light up the sky with a pillar and keep you warm, and light your path, and you say you're alone because you have no gratitude. You don't give thanks. Your foolish heart is speculating in futility because you're holding on to your definition of comfort and safety. And if you let that go, you could hear my promises of my presence and my possessions. You are owned by me. Could I share with you a few verses out of Romans that's true about you? That this can never be taken away from you? That in a thousand years it's still true? That no matter how stupid you and I become, it makes no difference? You have the first fruits of salvation, which is the Spirit of God. In our weakness, he strengthens us, it says. 
When we are too grief-stricken to prayer and we're on our knees weeping bitterly, the Spirit of God, the first fruits, says, I can translate that to the Father for you. All things work together for the good. For those who love him, that's us, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For he foreknew everything, and he foreknew you being his. And so he predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son, Christ Jesus. That's a promise. What shall we say then in light of these promises that we're holding on to? If God is for us, I want to know who could possibly be against us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him now freely give us all things? He gave his own son. How, how could he not give us all things now that the son is with him? Who will bring a charge? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it that condemns? Who is it that judges? The father judges. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died. No, 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 wait. He rose again, and right now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for you. It's a promise. It can't be taken away. Who will separate us? Who will separate us from the love of this Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'll tell you this. You are more than conquerors in these things through Christ who loves us. I'm convinced of this, that neither death nor life nor angels, demons, present or future, powers, height, depth, any created thing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, which is in our Lord. You have nothing. You have everything. But you have to have nothing to have everything. You have to let go of things that can rust, be stolen, or die so that you can hold only to the things that matter, the one thing that remains, his love. His his love. His love never fails. It never gives up. It'll never run out on you. So you have to let go of everything. You have to hold on to these promises. And then the next part, it was the hardest part, and now it's the easiest part. The third thing you have to do is give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, of course you will. You're holding on to his promises. Of course. Right. This is towards God, but you're thanking God in all circumstances, not, not because of all circumstances or not for all circumstances. They're dreadful circumstances that you and I are going to experience. But we thank God in all circumstances. Because we're holding on to things that can't be stolen, that can't die, that can't be a lie. And so we are a tapestry that God is weaving. And some of us get bright colored thread that is full of life and jovial and happy. And these are good things. And, but no one, no one graduates without having threads of, that are dark and shadowed and despairing and, and, and honestly, when you, if, you, if you get back far enough, you can just see that those, those darker threads, they bring out the brilliance of the light-colored threads. But that's for another day. It's for another picture. You, God has the last word. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. That's what it means to have the presence of God in your, in your promises that you're holding on to these things. 
And God has the last say, and, and, and Christ is the resurrection and the life. And the threads that make up your tapestry are sovereignly provided to make a work of art that will hang in the galleries for eternity for the pleasure of the king. You have to let go of everything so that you might hold on to the eternal, and then you end up going like this. That's how you get to Pentecostalism right here. You end up praising God in all circumstances. God rules everything. He owns everything. He tells everything to do what it's told to do, and he does it, and they do it. You holding on to this one thing that remains, and that's his love. His love never fails and never gives up. It will never run out on you. He, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Some people, whenever they enter a room, they fill it for, full of joy. Some people, whenever they leave a room, it fills it full of joy. <laughs> joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. Listen, I used the story of Israel in the desert because it's not about them back then, right? Israel is a story about us right here and right now. It is the bent of a human soul, just like I was reading in Romans chapter 1, it is the bent of every human soul to turn away from God and not give thanks. To know him, we know him as God, but we do not honor him as God nor give thanks. And so our thinking, it turns to futile speculations and foolishness. They are us. We are them. And we need to, we have to, this is a, a ball that we're pushing uphill all the time. It is a prayer that we need to have because as life comes upon us, we start collecting things, don't we? And we start holding things. And something has to happen in our lives sometimes if we don't intervene and let it all go. We have to hope less so that we can hold to the, these promises of God. The will of God for your life is this. The will of God for your life is this is to be joyful always, to pray continually, to be thankful in all circumstances. This is the will of God for your life in Christ Jesus, these things. Now, you remember I told you when we started that this is about you, but it's about us. This is in the paragraph about how to have a team. And I want to tell you how how it works. Uh, it's, it's happened in my life on multiple times. I don't want to play. I don't want to sing. I don't feel so joyful, and I'm absolutely not thank, thankful. And then I come in here. That's why I come in here. I remember one time sitting right over there. It was a very difficult, dark time in my life, and I thought, I'll just stay seated and listen. And you sang the promises of God that we put on these screens. And you prayed about the majesty and the glory of his kingship. And you convinced me to let go and to hold the things that are true, that will last for eternity, that are given to us as promises from a king who cannot lie and resurrected me from a state of absolute despair. That's why it's communal. God's will for your life is to be contagious. And if you're rejoicing always and you're praying continually and you are always thankful towards God, you will be contagious. That's not out there. It can't be faked. It doesn't come from anywhere else but God. Here's what I'd like to do today. Could we just do this short little drill? I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit of God 
to identify what you are holding on to that you need to let go of. This might not be the appropriate place to do that, and so I'm going to kind of more than more practice it or, or kind of give you a description of what it might be like because some of these things are, really, are very difficult for us to face. But ultimately, I want you to add, I'm going to pray this, but I want you to have a warning. What's the worst that could happen to you in your family, in your job, in your life, whatever? What is that? Face it. Go out to that field where Job sat, tear your clothes, cover yourself with ashes, and sit there. What does it take to get you into that field? Because you can't, you can't have what you're meant to have, the will of God, that you'd be filled with joy until you, you go out to that field. So let's pray. Let's ask. Let's just see if God's Spirit might kind of crash our little time together today, okay? Lord Jesus, I would ask that you would, um, would do that very, that very thing. Those things that we're holding on to, these are good things that in a perfect world before the fall that you would desire for us, a great intimate marriage and, and children that respect us and want to do great things for you and financial stability and all these things. These are good things, but they're not your things. They're not promises from you. So, Lord, give us a vision of our worst, our, our worst fears so that we might face them. These things that we hold on to that hold us down. It feels so lonely out in that field. Even our wife sometimes would ask us to mock you and die. And so, Lord, I'd ask that we would have this Jobin experience so that we could, we could say, <laughs> the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I came here naked. I'll leave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, Lord, we, I'd ask that you would help us meditate and be mesmerized by this native tongue of yours, the word of God, that we would, we would find ourselves uh, enjoying the presence of the first fruit, and that is the Holy Spirit. That, that his, your spirit would speak to ours and say, we are not alone in this desert. We can never be alone because of your promises. And that you intervene for us and you speak for us. You've arranged before time for us to choose you. That no, no thing or person could ever bring a charge against us. We are wrapped in you. Lord, let us feel the tower of clouds or the tower of fire that is all about us. Let us, let us live a life that requires an explanation because we are always rejoicing, constantly praying, and grateful in all things. Lord, let us be that kind of a church collectively. Let us help each other. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.